Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Today I have joining me, Yer Arelli. Yer, welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. Yer, you are currently the uh, um, Senior Vice President of Global Sales for Data Rails. Tell us about this, your current role in, in Data Rails. I joined them uh, almost a year ago, and I currently lead Global Sales and, and Pre-Sales. And it's an exciting, now round B used to be around A company when I joined, very, very fast growth. Um, and what I love about the company is that we, uh, we have many, many hundreds of customers and we, uh, we solve real problems for people. And the funny thing is that A, my wife is a, is a CFO as well. So we, solve, we, we sell to CFOs at CFO office. And then in my previous life, before moving into sales, I was actually an analyst and I acted as a right to hand all right, you know, right, second band for a COO. And I used to do some of the things that we now solve, but I used to stay those late nights and crunch Excel and crunch data and have my PC uh, fail again and again and collapse. And I had to restart and restart my work until 2 or 3 a.m. And now we have a great solution that solves that problem. So I, 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 really, I really feel the pain that our customers are feeling and, and I'm glad to see that we solve it for them. Oh, we've all lived in that world of, you know, just, you're trying to get this last minute stuff done. It's so important to get it done and it's right. And just tech problems get in the way and, you know, it's just a nightmare scenario. So, yeah. Um, and I love the name of the company, Data Rails too. I think it's pretty cool. Um, when you think back over your sales career, what are the three things that have really driven your success? It's a great question and I'll take a couple of seconds to answer it. So. Back in 20, I want to say 16 or 17, my former company, Sisense, that I spent a long time with them and really shaped up my sales career, my leadership style, they sponsored executive coaching as part of my professional development. And, and I learned a lot from the coach. And um, at some point, she, she never really explicitly talked to me about it, but she made me start thinking of what defines me as a professional that, and what's unique about me, what distinguishes me, what are the things I aspire to demonstrate and exercise in my day-to-day -day that will be part of my professional brand. And I came up with uh, uh, an aspirational three-pillar concept. And I, in, in my own words, and you can say I'm full of, you know, baloney and inspiration about it. In my own words, I call it innovative or innovation, persistence, discipline, commitment. And then the third one is coachability. And... Innovation is, is thinking of yourself just like a product. So just like iPhone 3 used to be the best phone, and I'm a, I'm a Samsung guy, by the way, but iPhone 3 used to be the best phone out there, whatever, 10 years ago, I don't know when. Now nobody will buy it because it is the iPhone 12 or whatever is out there now is new elements and other elements, other features got improved and some irrelevant features were discarded. And so professionals should constantly seek to develop their own PhD in their professions. I call it my, I'm a lifelong student of the profession of sales. And I constantly try to improve things and reconsider whether if, if what I'm doing is still relevant. It could have been relevant in the past, but maybe it's no longer relevant. So that's a fair thing that I'm on a journey uh, uh, to constantly accomplish. And you're never going to get there. It's always, you know, it's like a, the goalposts keep moving. 
And the second thing for me is the persistence and discipline. And I'll give you an analogy from, from sports, right? Um, you don't show up in the gym once every three or four weeks and you, you, know, you kill your body for four hours and then you just don't do it again. Rather than you have some kind of a cadence, whatever the cadence may be, how much you can dedicate to it, especially as a professional athlete or even if you're just an amateur person, call it two, three, four times a week and you keep pushing yourself. And every time you push yourself a little bit up, I'm not a superstar. I've never been, I'm never going to. Uh, one of the things that work for me is the persistence. I outwork others. And when everyone else gets tired, I know that it's, it's my time to shine. And I just push myself a little bit forward or a little bit uh, towards the edge. So it's about the persistence, about pushing yourself. And the third one is the hardest for me. And it's the hardest for many people. It's coachability. So if you think of us as people, we are a creature where if, if I'm going to give you feedback now, Chris, so if you give me feedback right now, our instincts to perceive, to perceive feedback, the natural instinct is to see it as a threat, turn the uh, uh, emotional part of our brain on, where the rational side of our brain usually kicks back in a little bit later. And so we immediately try to either fight the feedback or avoid the situation, right? Because it's a threat, just like in the gender life, you fight or fight, right? For, yep. that, that triple F, it's a freeze, fight or flight. And then I am on a journey to coach myself to see feedback as an opportunity. And I'm a hunter, I seek for opportunities, right? So if somebody gives me a feeling, I coach myself to take a deep breath, not resist it, and ask follow-up questions, let the rational side of my brain kick back in. And what happens is that usually in 80, 90% of the cases, the other party is right and I'm wrong. So if I only gave my, my body those couple of seconds to, you know, to take it rationally, then I usually realize I'm wrong and then I immediately, immediately try to admit my mistakes. I never push back on feedback on the spot. I take it back, think of it, and I may come back to in three hours and tell you, no, I've been thinking about this is why I think you're wrong. But I usually accept it. And I'm trying to take it to the extent that not only that I don't uh, push back on feedback, I seek for feedback. I constantly ask my team, what am I missing? If you were me, what would you do? What, what did I do wrong? What would you do differently? Um, I don't ask them if they agree with me, I always ask them if they disagree with me. And what about what I just did doesn't fit right, doesn't resonate. That creates, it it's, positions me as somebody who is coachable and it creates that culture around me. But more, more, than, more than anything else, I, I'm learning things that I didn't know and I, and I get better. That's some great stuff there. Um, you know, number one, I like how you answered that with three pillars. You know, to me, that's, that's a really strong answer. When you use the word pillar, like these are core beliefs that I, that I hold. Um, and then the way you, you, you wrap that up with the, uh, the coachability, I really believe to be a successful leader, you have to demonstrate vulnerability and, and empathy. And by, you know, a lot of people talk to me about they want to be coached from their their mentors or their superiors. I've never had someone say to me, I want to be coached by my team. Um, and uh, that that's really interesting. How did you develop that perspective or that need to, to get that feedback from your team? It's a, I think it's a survival instinct because I realized I'm never the smartest guy in the room or the smartest individual in the room um, or hardly ever. And secondly, you should know this is what I aspire to demonstrate. I have flaws and I don't always live up to my own expectations myself, but that's what I push myself to, to do. But I, I realized that um, nobody will take feedback from you if, you if you're not demonstrating, you don't lead by example. And specific with feedback, you you show them that you really it's not it's just not it's not just something I say just to so they accept feedback from me. It's it's a genuine intention to get to try to get better, and the fastest way to get better is to take the feedback, 
rationally think about it and then put what's right and usually it's right put it to work right so what was your first job in sales uh back when i was 12 uh i don't know if it sells or not but uh my my mom's friend had a, like a um, some kind of a small store and i would uh hand out pamphlet outside of the store and you know the, the, the surrounding streets to try to pull people into the store so i wasn't really selling but i was i was sdring if you want to call it this way yeah there you go what was the first sales job where you got paid um it was a retail sales job when i was 22. Uh, i was and it was commission only um and i was one of those annoying people that we, when you go to the mall you know those guys or girls trying to push you into their push cart in the middle of the aisle and try to sell yeah. some stuff i was one of those and that's that's that i think it was one of the hardest jobs i've ever had and when my sdrs tell me album is hard i can generally tell them i know because I, I i got beaten up i wouldn't say you know really beaten up but i got beaten up spit it somebody spit out spit on me because i tried to pull them in, in, in you know it was bad timing a lot of people yelled at me shouted at me offended me so nobody can tell me sales is hard or album is hard right based on right. that job so you developed a pretty thick skin from that experience i imagine and that, that was a very long day sometimes 12 hours on your feet wow yeah um so throughout your sales career you know, everyone goes through advancement. What was it, uh, or hopefully they do, but um, what was it that led you into sales leadership? I actually not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I, I was an AE for three plus years at my former company, SaaS seller. And um, I'm originally from Israel. I was born and raised there. And I started my career there. And then at some point, we were selling from Israel via inside sales globally. And they wanted to open a presence in the US, in New York. And they offered me to go and essentially open that office with a couple of other individuals. Uh, and I said, um, you know, what, what, what's, what's in it for me? What, what, what's gonna, what, how it's going to benefit my career? And then I said, well, we're going to need to hire people over there and we're going to deliver your DNA, the company's DNA. And you, you, you carry it with you because I was the first AE that was ever hired in that company. So I said, it, it would make sense you'll be the first manager and you bring the DNA, you'll bring this, not only just the uh, sales knowledge, but also the cultural knowledge there. And it looked like natural progression. So I just, I guess it just, you know, went with the flow and, and carried what on. What was your biggest fear heading into this position? A number of things. One of them was, you know, kind of call it imposter syndrome. Immigrant in the US, I actually spent some uh, a lot of time in the US before, um, and my my English skills were good, but not great. They're not perfect now, but they're better. And uh, there was a cultural gap, so you know you have the language barrier, then you have the cultural barrier. Where like I didn't know the you know the, the American sports talk. I didn't know what a Monday morning quarterback is, right? Right. I, I didn't know what the goalpost, moving goalpost, mean. I know soccer and basketball from I've been following it all my life. So. Yeah. Um, it, it was a big shift. Uh, that, that was my biggest concern. And, and second, it was uh, professional business leadership. It's something I was never, I never experienced before. I had previous experience in leadership in a very different setup. Um, so it was all new to me. I, you know, I was afraid I wasn't going to do it right. And I had high expectations of myself. And, uh, and I didn't do it well at the beginning. What was your biggest lesson learned from that experience? Um, I think it's, um, I, uh, fell into the trap of most um, 
young first-line sales managers. I call it the super AE trap, where you are, uh, I was just trying to, you know, I came, I've, I've been the first AE in the company. I was the most successful. Then there were a few other AEs, but I was, I was the most successful. And then I come in and I hire a few people and I try to teach them to do things exactly as I did it. And in hindsight, trying to make people be another version of yourself is the, the biggest fatal mistake you can make as an early, early uh, a young, lady, young manager, Peter. I've done that. I've done that. Just do it the way I do it. It'll be okay. <laughs> or, or even worse, you know, they get into trouble. So I, I call it modeling, teaching or coaching. Modeling is when they get into trouble, move, move, you know, get, get, put us, put, let me do it for you. Yeah. Whether I'm on a call and I just step in and take over or whether they're trying to do something and I say, let me do it for you. That's the modeling. Teaching is they ask me, um, how, do you, how do you do X, Y, Z? And I tell them, go do A, B, C, D, exactly as I would do it. And they're never going to do it as good as, as, as or exactly the way I want them. And who, by the way, who says that my way of doing it is the best? And then I evolved into what I call coaching. And I, listen, I'm still coaching and teaching, but I try not to model anymore unless there's like an emergency that I get something done. Um, where I ask them a few questions and we, and it takes time and patience, but what are we trying to accomplish? What are the ways to do it? And then I try to get them to uh, eventually land on what I want to push them to do, but I want them to feel it's their idea. By the way, in the discovery process, sometimes I realize their way of doing it is better than mine. Yeah. And like I said, I'm, I'm coachable, so I'm vulnerable. So I'll tell them I don't listen to, to a, a dumb guy like me, go do what you want, what you do best. Was there a moment where you had that realization that, hey, I'm not helping them, you know, I'm actually inhibiting them? Was there a, a light bulb moment that went off where like, hey, I need to change how I'm doing this? It, it, it probably took, first of all, you know, there were ups and downs. At first of the director, I did well, then at a couple of quarters, it, there was a sales slump. The company had sales slump, which we, they recovered very well from. Um, but I, I, I used to look at myself and say, okay, well, no matter whatever the external forces that I'm fighting with, I'm going to do well. And suddenly I did more or less like everyone else, not good enough. That was one thing. And then it was some, some professional maturity and, and, and realization, maybe some of the professional uh, executive coaching that I got. I, there was actually another step in the way for me from a super AE. There was a step that I used to call uh, the apologetic leader mm -hmm. where on my team, there was another AE. And funny enough, we're still in touch. He's no longer, he's, he worked for me for five and a half years, but we're still in touch. When he was brought into the company, he was brought in by the VP of sales over there. And there was a, some kind of an environment was created where that A was essentially assigned to me, but he didn't really need to listen to me because he was more, more experienced. And he had a like legitimacy to go straight to the VP or skip me or ignore me. Um, so I find myself questioning my leadership's capabilities and style. And I started being an apologetic leader. Like, you know, if I would push people to do things better or demand a higher bar, I, would need, I, I felt the need to apologize. And then at some point, I realized that I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I'm good enough for what, in what I do. I consistently need to push myself to become better and better and better. But from uh, a super AE to apologetic leader, I became the one that is vulnerable, but is pushing, you know, setting the bar, setting the, the sales culture, and pushing the team to do the best they can possibly be the best version of themselves. And I found a lot of people kind of are being receptive to that version and, and the results got better. And that's, that's how I, then in hindsight, I look back and say, okay, this is the journey I went through. So every time I coach first or second line managers, I, I tell them about my story and how I want them to get from A to Z in six months, whether the three or four years that it took me. Um, when you're building a team or, or especially your like sales managers, uh, your team of sales managers, 
what are the qualities you're looking for uh, in your in your managers? Are you asking about um, managers, not age, right? Yeah. First and foremost, I look for others' orientation, just like a parent. It is not about you. And if you if it doesn't sit right with you, fine, stay in AE. Don't be a manager. By the way, not not all great people need to be managers. Right. And second of all, I look for somebody who is a leader, not a leader first, manager second. And and I look while I'm trying to project my pillars on them. I look and I look for those pillars. Um, I also try to find things that they can uh, teach me that I don't know well. And um, so so it, it's about vulnerability. It's about uh, coachability. It's about not being emotional. It's about uh, persistence and high. I attitude towards working hard but smart, constantly trying to get better. And like I said, and, and, and pushing me to be a better version of myself. So when we were uh, meeting prior to hitting the record button for the podcast, you asked me why I wanted you to come on the podcast. And uh, when we were screening potential guests, um, we, we saw his, his your LinkedIn profile. And I, if Listeners, I highly recommend you go check out his profile. There were some things, really strong statements in your, your profile that I want to talk to you about. Uh, first thing you have in there is uh, servant leadership. Uh, my job is to enable each and every one of my team members' success and help them moonshot their career. While they report up to me, I work for them. I lead by example and from the front. I personally, I really align with this. I think that's why I wanted to have on the show. I, I think that's really a, a key attribute for successful leadership or successful leaders. But um, how do you create that that culture? Because like you talked about this, creating this culture around this. What are some of the things, the tangible things that you've done to help create that that culture of servant leadership within your team? First of all, I got to give credit for somebody. Uh, his name is Amit Bendov. He's the founder and CEO of Gong. If you ever heard of that uh, company, he used to be my direct manager. Ran ran our company, our former company. Then went on and kicked off Gong, and uh, I was one of his first users, beta users. And we're still, I can say, we're still fairly close. And he once told me, and that stuck with me. He says, "You may report up to me, all of you, but I work for you. I get no work to do but enabling you. That's my job. Now I may not give you everything you want because I may disagree, or maybe I don't have enough resources, but my job starts and ends in enabling the sales team. That stuck with me. So as one of my role models, I try to live and die by that, by that example. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, you've talked about coachability and uh, um, no ego at the workplace. I'm, I'm passionate and focused about implementing the best idea for every problem, regardless whose idea it was from. Um, you mentioned earlier, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, I know a lot of leaders like to, or at least, or especially young leaders feel like they have to be the smartest person or the one everyone looks up to. Um, how did that belief evolve uh, for you? A, because I'm usually not the smartest person. Why, <laughs> why, why, why bothering, why, why spend energy and pretending? Right. B, modern leadership, that's, at least that's the way I see it, is about moderating and enabling your team around you and enable them to be successful. It's not about telling them what, it's just not what the, you know, the younger generations, I'm not that too old, I'm just turned 40, but um, people just don't follow that. It's a fact because they have other options. We live in a, in a world where people have options, especially in tech. 
So if you don't present the best option to them, they'll seek for it elsewhere. So it's just a waste of time on trying to pretend who you aren't. Um, and then ego does, just never served me. All of us have ego. I work hard to check my, what, what, I, what I wrote over there, I live and die by, and I'm not bullshitting, I live and die by those statements, but it's not easy to execute on them. I need to find my own you know, human flaws. Right. So I find myself sometimes in a discussion, call it an argument, focused argument, I usually don't get into heat, you know, too heated and forward discussions. And then I'm like, I, I sometimes tell myself, why am I getting into this discussion? What, what, am, I, what am I trying to serve here? So I, I think I'm, I got better at being able to control my flaws. And then as soon as I remind myself that I'm, that I'm you know, acting by ego, I, uh, it's, it's easier to control it and then hopefully check it and then listen to better ideas than mine. Who cares about, nobody, nobody pays me if, uh, more if my ideas were implemented. I'll get paid more if the best ideas will be implemented. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I don't know where I read this. I wish I had a better memory for stuff like this, but I was reading about, you know, years ago, decades ago, uh, there were three teams doing a race to one of the polls. And uh, out of the three teams, one team just set a pattern of every day we're going to do 20 miles. Regardless of what the weather's like, the conditions like, the terrain does not matter. We're gonna, we're not stomping until we get 20 miles every day. The other two teams that were competing against them, um, whenever the weather got bad, they would hunker down in their tents and wait for the weather to clear. And then when the weather was good, they would push as far as they could that day. It might be 40 miles that they would do that day. Um, the only team that made it to the pole was the team that had that discipline of we're going to do 20 day 20 miles a day regardless of the conditions. The other two teams ran out of food or just you know gave up um, because of their you know starts and stops and you know the delays and waiting for conditions to be perfect before they proceeded. You in your profile you talk about discipline and everything you do. And you've mentioned that several times in our discussion. Can you talk about you know having discipline as a sales leader and, and within a sales organization? Well, there's, there are many things to require discipline. I think everything good in life doesn't come easy. And if, just like you said, the discipline, it, you know, that thing was listening to the poor. Um, trying to think of a specific idea. I mean, I can speak about my discipline. Every day I wake up, yeah, let's do. Let's start there. It's it's you know usually I now wake up even before the alarm clock most days, around five thirty, five forty, and um, and I have a couple of I always have a couple of tasks lined up for me. Yeah, between that when I wake up and then seven a.m. at seven a.m. I pause and I go help my wife to take you know prepare the kids for school or you now in the summer camp. Um, so every morning I tell myself maybe maybe I'll sleep another half an hour, and then I just push myself. And then I bruise my ankle in an MMA, MMA, MMA class maybe a year and a half ago, and it still hurts me every morning when I take my first five steps. It's just unreal. I, I run, you know, six, 10Ks a couple of times a week, and I do mixed martial arts a couple of times a week. And still, every morning that I wake up, the first five steps when I'm stepping on my left uh, leg, it, it's hurting me. So getting out of bed every morning, earlier than everyone else, is even though it became my second my second nature, it's still very hard, and that's that's something that I'm 
fairly proud of it. I'm able to do it every morning despite my natural inclination not to do it that morning, which is every morning. I tell you, if I don't work, I go to work out. It's not working, it's working out. It's just yep. I, uh, I, I've talked to a lot of successful leaders and, and that's one of the common traits that I found is they're highly disciplined. Uh, the people that really are achieving significant success are the ones that are highly disciplined and they structure their days. Um, and oftentimes they start their days just like you are. And so I've begun modeling myself that way where I, I said, I wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and I go to the gym. Those days, especially in Colorado, I live in Colorado, it can be really cold some of those mornings. And it's not real fun going out and going to the gym, but I've just found that if I, if I put that discipline in and how I start my day, it carries me throughout the day. Have you found that same result for you? Yes, like I said, I, I, I either work in the morning because a lot of my team is based in Israel overseas. I'm, I live in Hoboken, which is just the Hudson, yeah. the New, New Jersey side of the Hudson. Um, but there's a seven hours time difference. So by working six to 7 a.m., I, I can get more airtime with my, uh, my fellow exec out of Israel. Um, so if I'm not with them, I either do some professional development or I work out. That time, that time of the day is, is, uh, is used for uh, meaningful uh, activities. But, but yeah, you can't get, can get anything in life. I mean, if you look at people that were successful in the business, in sports, in musicians, artists, anything and everything, um, some people are superstars. Unfortunately, I'm not one of them. I'm not saying I'm not, and I was, I'm fortunate to be gifted with some skills and some talents, but if you don't cultivate them, then you're one out of many. By the way, there's some days where I tell myself, you know, I can spend another two hours in the evening working, reading another professional book, and I don't do it every evening. And I intentionally choose not to be even better than I, or even better than what I can be now. So there's always, there's also balance in life. I don't work, you know, work myself to death, death but I'm 100% subscribed to your concept. You, you, you gotta work hard if you wanna achieve bigger, bigger, uh, um, because of better results. Yeah, I agree. CRM, integral component to every sales organization, or at least it should be. CRM, do you love it or do you hate it? I would say love it, but I have to admit, I don't have, you know, I did never developed strong emotions about it. It's, it's, a, it's a tool for me. It's a good tool. Awesome. I love that approach. I see that to people all the time, like, it's a tool. Um, and it should be used as a tool like any other tool. It's there to help make your organization better. How do you guys leverage CRM to make your, your team better? Unfortunately, I don't have a, like a, a fancy story here. It's, it's the, the data that we captured. It's the sales process we defined. And as part of my uh, process in the company, when I came in, I, I redefined the sales process and simplified it. Um, and, I, and I try to use the CRM to um, enforce that, not maniacally, but I do enforce it. And then, and then it's the reports and the data that drives decisions and behaviors. Right. Do you ever struggle in your career? Have you guys ever struggled with data in CRM? That's a common complaint I hear is our data. We can't trust our data. First of all, the data is a, is a data analytics that I can say veteran at this point in the past 12 years I've been selling data analytics. Um, it's the data integrity is always the biggest issue. Uh, and yes, we unfortunately suffer from the same thing, both in my former company, which is a BI company, and now in, in my current company, which we, you can say we're some kind of a BI company as well, in, in some ways. Yeah. 
Uh, what about adoption? Do you have any advice for people that, uh, as a leader, maybe they're struggling with getting their team to really leverage CRM as a tool? Just like anything and everything else in life, um, you, you need to sell the idea. I sell ideas to my kids. I sell ideas to my uh, better half. I sell you know, ideas to my prospective customers. If you don't convince your people that it's their interest and you rather tell them, um, do it because I said so, because I need you to do it, because it's for me, something like it done as good. If you think of the best leaders, and that's something I learned um, back when I was 20, I, uh, I served as an officer in the Israeli Defense Forces, which was compulsory, compulsory service over there, and then I uh, volunteered to go to officer schools, not just, not just being a soldier. So they taught us that the best leaders are those who are able to make their surroundings do what they want, while the surroundings or the, or the soldiers feel like it was their idea. So you don't even feel you're like you know surrendering to someone else's idea. The second best leaders, which are still very good, but they're second best, are those who, Chris, I don't get it why you say so, but I trust you want to trust myself. So I'm just going to follow your lead because you know better, because you're better than me. That's good, but not best. And then the worst are managers do because I said so. And where leadership ends, authority or manager, managerial authority starts. Yep. So I, I strive to be a leader as much as I can. I, I wish there's another book I can't remember the name of, but uh, I read it very early on. My dad gave it to me. I was probably 22 years old when I read the book. Last year. It was, yeah, last year. <laughs> um, it was a book on leadership. And, and in the book they talked about, or, you know, they used the analogy of a sheep herder. You know, you can be that manager that's behind the, the herd with a stick, whacking them, trying to get them to go in the direction they want to go, or you can be that that leader who's out in front and the herd is following because they you know he's leading the way he's out in front and they know if they follow him they're going to go in the right direction um that's always resonated with me and i've always tried to remember that um what advice do you have for someone who is um about to assume or maybe just assumed a leadership role in sales go back to the uh super a the vulnerable uh, or the apologetically a leader that you know was just trying to apologize why am I setting the bar high and and uh, maybe was afraid to be vulnerable and just skip those stages and go straight to being a leader. Now, how, how would you do that? Um, you need to constantly possess knowledge and ideas that I don't they don't have. You need to uh, be factual and not emotional. I mean, you can be emotional in a good way to you know, try to relate to those people, but don't be emotional and angry because people usually don't do stupid things on, on purpose. They make mistakes, uh, but they don't do it on purpose for the most part. And if they do it on purpose, they're probably not, they, they shouldn't be on your team. Uh, so that's one thing. And then um, diversify and, and grow your, your skills and knowledge. I try to read quite a lot. Um, I, I actually read, I listen to audiobooks, but a lot of professional books are related to our craft, sales, sales leadership, sales companies, leadership, presentation skills. And I take the time to summarize those books. It takes forever. But I summarize them into like a Google Doc, and I have a folder of all my professional books. Um, and I learn if you think of a business, an American business book, it's typically about seventy thousand words because the publishers ask the writers to fluff it up. And you can boil it down to about thousand words that makes make sense, and then three to five good ideas that you can take from the book and bring them from the theoretical world into the practical world. Yep. So if you're that person that can always bring a new idea and a new and a new thought and can always lend a hand and advice um they'll follow you awesome and they want to be like you. you 
Thank you for coming on Sales Lead Dog. If people want to reach out and connect with you, if they want to learn more about Data Rails, what's the best way for them to connect? Um, hit me on LinkedIn, Yair, Y-A-I-R-R-E-L-I. I'm the only one uh, with that name, to the extent of my knowledge. Or just email me, Yair Arelli, first, last name, one word, at gmail.com. Would love to chat and learn and, uh, and get better. Awesome. And we'll have all that information in our show notes if you didn't catch that. So check out the show notes on impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog. Um, find this episode and, and many others. So Yarek, again, thank you for coming on sales lead dog and welcome to the pack. As we end this discussion on sales lead dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes on social media. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube, and you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog. Sales lead dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.